please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 and find the first four verses where we'll focus our attention this morning. In Hebrews chapter 1, the preacher to the Hebrews is trying to build his case that the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to unfold. The preacher is predicating the entire argument of his sermon to these Hebrews on the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and the only rightful heir of God. Because if Jesus isn't these things, then he cannot be what the rest of the book of Hebrews claims that he is. And so how do we know that these claims that he makes are true? How do we know that Jesus is truly the Son of God? How do we know how can we be sure about Jesus? How, how do we know this isn't a giant elaborate fabrication of evidence? Who's, whose testimony can we believe? We're left with really only one sure bet, and that's to ask the source, and that would be God. And so in this, these few verses, we see who God says the Son is. Last week, we saw four answers to the question, who is the Son? This week, we'll see Two more. I was thinking three more, but two more. So please stand with me where we see seven proofs that Jesus is the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 1, the first four verses. Who is the Son? That's the question he's answering. Verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than Theirs. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful this morning for the confidence you give us in your word that we know who your Son is and we know what he has done. So help us in this season, especially of our culture, where there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus was and who he is. Help us to really understand the truth and the beauty of the Son of God who came from heaven to be man, to live life on this earth. Truly God, truly man. So that he could be like us and die for us. Holy and divine, righteous, and at one point dead. Because we deserved it. So Father, as we consider your son, help us to see that we can't do what he has done, but we desperately need it. By your grace, give us faith to believe. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Remember the point of these verses is to prove that Jesus is who the preacher says he is. And notice on this slide that Jesus is the Son of God, the final word of God. That phrase is what the next seven clauses seek to define. 
So who exactly is the son? Well, he's the, the climactic, the ultimate, the full and final, the crowning revelation through the one who is God's only son. That is who Jesus is. Jesus is described through his character. He's described uh, through his occupation. He's described through his function. He's described in his roles, his roles of revelation, creation, reconciliation. And all these descriptions seek to add weight and add glory and add supremacy to the identity of this son of God. Jesus is not one of many. He is the one of one perfect son of God. And so Christ in his personhood and work, it's put before us. My grandma, I remember she had this lazy Susan that would sit on the table and you could spin it and stuff, it would go around. And it's like what God has done with his son. He's on the lazy Susan. When you spin it, he just goes around. You're seeing him from a new angle everywhere. And everything you see in Jesus is that he is the son of God. So who is the son? Well, he's the final word. But what makes up this final word? The preacher answers with seven marks that prove that Jesus is God's final revelation. And so you, you see where we began last week. This is where we'll end this week. Well, next week. Jesus is the heir. This is where we'll see his inheritance at the end of verse 4. Why such an emphasis on Jesus being heir or Jesus inheriting and receiving this inheritance. Why, why the emphasis put on Jesus as the heir of God? Because in ancient days, family reigned supreme. It was the most important organization any society could ever know. Governments, yeah, yeah, yeah. But family, that's what mattered. Clans, that's what mattered. Family. And who was the one passing the patriarch baton? That was the one that mattered. And the one that received it. The heir, that was the one that mattered. Those, those were the leads of their families. The supreme honor of the supreme institution fell to the heir. You didn't make an heir someone who was not blood, normally. Jesus, though, as God's son, is God and the heir of God. So second, Jesus is not only God, but he does the works of God. He creates. Mankind cannot create. Jesus created. Meaning what? Jesus was God. He's able to do the works of God because he's God. Third, in his nature or in his person, Jesus was God. Jesus is not God-like. Jesus is not an emanation of God. Jesus is not a form of God. Jesus is God. Having explained what the Father has done for the Son and making him heir, Jesus is exalted. Jesus is shown as God. Each phrase is designed to majestically and profoundly illustrate the truth that they teach that Jesus is the Son of God. Fourth, the power or role or activity of Christ is on display in how he is over creation and under creation, undergirding creation, upholding creation. This verse clearly teaches that Jesus not only looks like God, but he acts like God. He does the work of God. Why? Because he is God. There could be no more impressive job description than upholding and directing everything that exists, and that's who Jesus is. Today we see, fifth, that Jesus is the Son of God, God's final revelation, and we're shown the proof that he is this because of all that he's accomplished. But this is not a generic participation trophy of accomplishment. It is specific in scope. In fact, Christ accomplished everything that creation most needed and was most incapable of accomplishing for herself. Notice in the middle of verse 3, after making purification for sins. 
So this is the accomplishment of all accomplishment. Jesus purified sin. Why does that matter? What matters because you need to be saved by his accomplishment. This is where the good and the good news comes from. But at the beginning of this phrase, we see after. So this is a marker of sequence. Something happens and then something happens. So Jesus making purification is first. This must take place before what we see is coming, that Jesus is enthroned, sitting down at God's right hand. But I want to break down this discussion of the son's accomplishment with two simple questions. What did he do and why did he do it? What is this accomplishment and why did he pursue it? And to begin with, we have to understand when we, when we read these words, we don't carry the same baggage that Greek ex-Jews in the Hellenistic culture of, of synagogue Christ, or of Judaism would have carried. They would have had in their mind all these things that the preacher was talking about. After making purification for sins, they would have felt their religious past. They would have known what was going into this reality of making purification for sins. They're, these are words that point to the greatest questions man can ask. These are words that identify the most profound struggles that mankind has ever known. These are words that point to the most beautiful deliverance that God has ever offered and achieved for man. We hear these verses and we think of a few Bible stories, maybe a few verses and possibly a flannel graph. But these ex-Jews, they would have known what this preacher was trying to communicate. And some if not many of these ex-Jews would have went on pilgrimages from wherever they were at in Italy or Rome, and they would have gone to Jerusalem. They would have went on a pilgrimage during one of the feasts, probably Passover, maybe one of the other ones. They'd been to the Temple Mount. They'd taken their money to the money changers. They'd exchanged their money, and they'd went and purchased a live animal, a lamb possibly. They'd, they'd taken it into the temple, and they'd held its head, and they'd watched as the priest cut its throat and drained its lifeblood. In this ritual, which was a divinely prescribed picture of their purification, these people, they smelled the blood necessary for their purification. They, they heard the final gargled cries of the animal as its essential death is, is happening. They instinctively, instinctively felt the cost of their purification, which that's my question for you. Do you feel that? Not a, not, a, not a lamb, but a man. Do you feel that? If you don't, then let's dig in because this is where salvation has come from. This is why you're saved if you're saved. Middle of verse three, the son made purification for sin. Again, two questions. What did he do and why did he do it? First, let's look at the motivation behind the work of Christ. Why did he make purification for sins? Why did he make purification for sins? Again, this is to our detriment to not share the Old Testament heritage and wealth of knowledge the recipients of this sermon would have had. They, they knew there was a special class of people who were engaged in the purification business. It wasn't everyday normal Joe Israel who could just make purification for sins. It was the priest's job who made purification for sins. And who else? Great answer. Just the priest. That's who did this. This verse is putting the patch of priest on Jesus' uniform. This, this verse is identifying the labor union that Jesus joined. 
This verse is labeling Jesus as a priest. He was obviously many other things, but he had to be and definitely was the greatest high priest that Israel could have ever hoped for. And what, what do priests do for their people in Judaism? Well, there's lots of different things, but one thing they definitely do is they play the role of a mediator. So the book of Leviticus is how God describes for his people People like them, people from them that bring them to him. And those people are called priests. They're just people. They happen to have a special heritage. They happen to have some special training. But they were just people and they brought God's people, sinful as they were, to God, holy as he was. Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 is in large part how priests were to sacrifice on behalf of God's people to purify them so they could fully worship him. But Leviticus goes way beyond just the sacrificial system and the life of a priest. The priest is to be more than just some kind of temple servant that does stuff. He's to teach the people, instruct the people. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10 and 11, you are to distinguish. This is God's command to Aaron, the high priest and the priests that follow him. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. That was the priest's job to say, this is for God. This is set apart. This is holy. And, and this is common. So we have to sanctify this to pursue this. And what's the this? It's you. We have to sanctify you if we want to be made right with God. And they're to be not only just doing this for people, they're to be an example of this. God commands Aaron, he says, drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. Should be a statute forever through your generations. The point is that priests were to take what they did very seriously. They represented sinful Israel to holy God. Sinful Israel couldn't get to holy God without the priests. Why did Israel need a priest? Because God is not like them. God is holy. Why do we need a priest? Because not, God is not like us. God is holy because God cannot be with sin. If God cannot be with sin, God cannot be with the sinner. And if God cannot be with the sinner, the sinner is what? Hopeless. And the death the sinner dies is eternal. And so the priest for Israel made a way for the people of Israel to commune with the holy and righteous God of Israel. It was temporary, but it was a way. It was a shadow of the substance that was to come, which was Christ. You see, we all share this exact same problem Israel had. You think, oh, I don't know, I don't live in a desert. I've never, no, you have. You have the exact same problem that these people had. It's sin, separation from God, the coming judgment that you have no way to prepare for. Maybe you're here today and you think, if I could just get a few things in my life straightened out, if I could just get a few of these nagging bills paid off, if I could get a few problems solved, if I could just get my toilet to stop leaking, I'd be good to go. Maybe you have too many bills at the end of the month and not enough money. Maybe you have too many kids around the Christmas tree and not enough presents under the Christmas tree. Maybe your job is unfulfilling or your marriage is unhappy or, or Social Security is behind and the Times and the Colas aren't making it work. Maybe you've been widowed. Maybe you're lonely. And all these are real problems. But they're not the ultimate problem. None of them are our biggest problem. 
Our biggest problem was Israel's biggest problem. There was something that separated her from God. And that same something separates us from God. And since Adam and Eve chose to believe a lie in the garden and act in sin and rebellion against God, man has been under the curse of sin. The curse of sin from the beginning has had its effects that have stretched out into every corner of every single human life that's ever lived. Sin is not conforming to the image that God created us to be, his image. And while we bear his image in our creation, it's marred because of our sin. We're marred by sin. And though we were created to be known by God and loved by God and to know God and love God because of sin, we can't on our own. We fail because of our sin. So what must happen? We must be what? Purified. And this verbiage in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it has a, a, temper, a, a temple, a, a tabernacle, a priesthood flavor to it. Maybe you know somebody who likes to cook with a certain spice. Or maybe you are somebody who likes a certain spice. I love curry. I love it in about anything except for a fruit salad. But I love curry. And when my wife puts it in, I know it. And I love it. And I'm excited about it. And some people, they know curry too. And they don't like curry, and they're not excited about it, and they don't want it. But when we have something like that that's unique and distinct, we know when it's there. These ex-Jewish people, when they hear purification, they think priest and sacrifice. They knew that what this is talking about. They think priest, they think sacrifice, and what's the result of a priest and a sacrifice? Blood. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, taught for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. There is no forgiveness of sins without what? Blood. There is no new life without what? Blood. There is no purification without blood. Modern society seeks to deceive us all into thinking that if we just want to be right with God, if we just make a good effort to be right with the divine, if, if we just hope that he's happy with us, that we'll be okay. And that when the end comes, whatever there is will welcome us. God has taken great pains to teach us the utter nonsense of that idea. He will not accept you as a sinner. You must be made righteous. You must be purified. Your sins will never be overlooked. Instead, your sins will bring God's wrath upon you. And that may seem harsh to you. And it might be harsh, except for God has made a way for you to have your sins purified. Your sins forgiven. God knew your sin would keep you from him and keep you from pleasing him, so he decided to act of his own volition, and he provided a priest, one who would make purification for sins. So the first question, again, why did Jesus make purification for sins? Because you and I desperately needed him to. Apart from his purification for our sin, we have no hope of being reconciled with God. We needed him to act on our behalf. The second question, what did he do to make purification for sins? Well, I want to take a little detour 
that should give us the truth we need. Go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29, I'm going to hope to show you a couple of things, but one is the identity of Israel's priest, Genesis, Exodus, if you're wondering, right at the beginning of your Bible, chapter 29, the identity of priests, how they became priests, and what they did as priests. And I think that will help us understand when we read that he made purification for sins, that'll help us see what Jesus was doing. Remember, this is the Hebrew people, when we read of Exodus, this is the Hebrew people shortly after their exodus from Egypt, where God delivered them from a broken and sorrow-filled, hopeless people and began to craft them into his nation. They were a population of ex-slaves delivered from the most powerful nation in the world that the world had ever known up to that point. All by the miraculous work of God, God took those who could not help themselves and he made them his own. Sounds familiar. Perhaps a broad view of Exodus would be helpful, but don't forget what we're trying to understand. We're trying to hone in on this priestly purification idea. So remember, Exodus begins with the suffering and oppression and despair of God's people in chapters one through six and the heartache of what it was to be a Hebrew in Egypt, captive as slaves to Egypt. Yet don't forget, God told Abraham this was gonna happen, so while it, wasn't, it was unwanted, it was absolutely necessary in God's plan. And then after that come the plagues, the Passover and God's deliverance. Chapter six to 15. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. God says, watch this. God makes him. God sends 10 plagues. The final one, God sends the angel of death that takes every firstborn. Unless God's people obeyed him and they put the blood of a lamb that was slain over the doorposts of their home and then God passed over them. For God's people to be saved by God, they had to obey him through sacrifice and the shedding of blood. Then there's the testing in the wilderness, chapter 15 to 18. Then there's the covenant and law and the establishment of a nation at Mount Sinai, chapters 19 to 25. And then we have this DIY tabernacle section from chapter 25 to 31. It's like Israel goes to Ikea and grabs a tabernacle and is supposed to try to set it up. It's, no. Six chapters of things like porpoise skins, how big they are and what they cover. Things like acacia wood beams wrapped in gold that go through golden rings to hold things up. That's pretty amazing. But what's the point of that chapter, those six chapters, the point is that God takes his worship very seriously. And then Aaron and his failure comes with the golden calf and covenant renewal in chapter 32, verse to, chapter 32 to 34. So Israel absolutely, utterly fails God. God again renews his covenant, covenant with her. And then we have the tabernacle constructed and God's glory coming in chapter 35 to 40. So there's the big picture of the book of Exodus, a beautiful book of Exodus, an amazing story but notice if you're there in chapter 29, you find yourself in this tabernacle instructions section. Instructions to a new nation, flesh out of, fresh out of slavery with new leaders. And remember who Aaron and Moses were before the Exodus. Remember who Moses was before he was Israel's leader. Remember who Aaron was before he was Israel's priest. What were their qualifications? Remember Moses, he was an Egyptian murdering deserter of his people. He was past royalty and present criminal. And Aaron was a wishy-washy mess of a man who followed his wife for the whims of the mob instead of God. They were obvious sinners. And they were leading God's people to God? The Hebrew people were awash of idolatry, 
And they had their souls infused with the evil of Egypt. You can take the Hebrew out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of the Hebrew. What was God to do? The Hebrews had a purity problem from their leaders to their kids. And in Exodus, God builds for his people their pathway to purity. Exodus is an amazing book. It's not merely, though, stories of God's might. It's a handbook on being made right with God. And it begins with God's work. What does God do? God delivers them. It begins with his work. And it moves to his motivation. He loves them even in spite of them. And it holds his commandments. If Israel wants to know or the Hebrew people want to know what's good, just follow what God has said. He's given them what is best for them. It provides to the Hebrews a response in worship to God for the glory of God being expended on their behalf. And this is important because nothing the Hebrews do can make them pure. If they want to be pure, they have to do what God has said to do. And when you get to chapter 29 of Exodus with the golden calf on the horizon, you find how the Hebrews are to turn a normal person into what's called a priest. Turning a person into a priest. That's the point of chapter 29. As you read Exodus or you consider the history of Israel, you'll never be confused that Israel on her own is pure before God. She was not chosen in purity, nor did she figure out purity. Instead, before God, on her own, Israel is always in need of God's grace, always desperately in need of God's mercy. Because of her what? Sin. What did she need? A priest to make purification for sin. So from the beginning of her identity, God shows her how to pursue purity, and it always involves a who? A priest. From the least of Israel to the priest of Israel, Israel needed purified. There was always the expectation of a necessity of purification. So why the tabernacle? Because Yahweh was not common. Yahweh was holy. He was set apart. He deserved to be separate from his people until they were approved to commune with him. Yahweh wasn't common. He couldn't be carried around in a box. He couldn't be carried around on a cart pulled by an ox. Don't forget, he's not limited to his Ark of the Covenant. He wasn't confined by his courts, and he wasn't defined by his people. He did those things. He says, I'm here. If you want to come to me here, then you will look like this. You will act like this. You will do these things to come to me here. He alone says, this is how you'll worship me, because I am worthy, and you are a sinner. Every detail of the Hebrew people's religious activity sought to instill in them that Yahweh was different from them. And Yahweh was not like Molech. Yahweh was not like Raj or whoever. Yahweh was perfect, holy, and pure. And to approach him, they needed to humble themselves and to obey his desires and do as he directed. And the consequences were very simple. You didn't have to. You didn't have to. God was not going to make Israel. Nadab and Abihu. Numbers chapter 11, they learned, don't bring strange fire to God or you turn into a dark spot on the sand. Uzzah, 2 Samuel chapter 6, he learned, God says, don't touch the ark. Uzzah thought, the ark's tipping, I'll touch the ark. The anger of God consumed him. God is not common. God is God, man is not. You do not treat God like a good friend. You treat him like God. Yahweh defines holiness. Yahweh is pure. Man has to understand man is not. 
And so to approach God demanded an exercise of purification, which is for the priests, Exodus chapter 29, all 37 verses. Any time a high priest is initiated, this is the protocol. At the beginning, you'll see initial offerings of brain, uh, of brain, <laughs> of bread and grain. That's very different from brain. Bread and grain and oil. Those things were offered first. There was a ritualistic bathing ceremony. There was a washing, washing of the priestly garments. And then draw your eyes to verse 10. And notice what happens. Then, so this is all in sequence. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the bull and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar and you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp it is a sin offering so two fingerprints of blood on the altar some fat and organs on the altar to burn about 10 gallons of blood poured at the base of the altar then about 30 yards of intestines and about 50 pounds of fat and 100 pounds of skin taken to the edge of camp and burned why so that they could proceed to the next step Step three, remember step one, bath and oil and grain. Step two, bull number one. Step three, Exodus 29, verse 15. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. And then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a, a food offering to the Lord. Step four, Exodus 29, 19 to 20. Notice what's different between ram number one and ram number two. Ram number two, you shall take the other ram and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. So all of a sudden, the sacrifice gets personal. Not only is, is, is God's prescribed activity demanded because he deserves it, but these priests, they needed it. Man needs it. This, sacrificial, this sacrifice is personal not only because their hands were on it, but because its blood is put on them. Step five, I'm obviously summarizing, but there's food made from the sacrifices and the wave offerings. For what purpose? There is sacrifice, and then there is feasting. There is sacrifice, and then there is fellowship. There is sacrifice, then there's the picture of reconciliation. If you read the tabernacle and later the temple activity carefully, you, you will see built into the system of, of sacrifice is reconciliation and fellowship vertically with God, not just horizontally with man. And that is what ram number two, the ram of ordination, was designed to accomplish. Yes, purification. Yes, appeasement. And yes, fellowship with God. That's why the ram and the bread is then eaten. Look at Exodus 29, 31. 
You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons eat the sacrifice. Sounds familiar. Again, the sinful human priests are identifying with these sacrifices. They are connecting their consecration with the death and the blood of the animals and the grain of the bread offering to God, which all results in what? Fellowship with God. But all that, why? Why, why, why do we do all that? Because Israel's sinful. God is holy. Israel can't get to God on her own, so God gives them priests. Look at Exodus 29, 37. So you have this altar that is holy and priests who are able to make atonement on a consecrated altar. And then here's the point of everything. Look at verse 38. Now, the, Moses says, listen to me. This is the point. Why do we do all this stuff? This is the point. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. That's, where, that's, this whole, that's the point of all this. To get here where these priests could take a sacrifice on behalf of the people and bring fellowship between God and his people. Priests were to begin every single day of Israel's history like this. Every single day. When Israel's priests were faithful to worship Yahweh on behalf of his people, this is what it looked like. Verse 42 and 3. It shall be a regular burnt offering through your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. All of that so that God would dwell with his people and his people could be in his presence. We'll finish this excursus. Verse 45 and 6. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I'm the Lord their God. Why did God deliver the people of Israel? Because he wanted them. And how did God want them? In perfection. But they couldn't get to perfection on their own. So God purifies a people called the priests. And the priests do what? They take rams and lambs and Bulls and they sacrifice and over and over they sacrifice so that God's people could know God and be made right with God. Keep in mind, this is just one chapter. It's Exodus. This is just the beginning. Leviticus is full of this. Deuteronomy is full of this. How God's people are made right with him and able to be fellowshipping with him because of their what? Their sin that's defiling them. Over and over, God says, you can't just come to me. You are sinful. I am perfect. You must be made pure to approach me. Over and over, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. When Israel was faithful... There was the burnt body and flesh of a slain lamb with its fat and its wool burning dark smoke up from the tabernacle or up from the temple every morning. Every morning for the people to, to see and to hear and to smell day after day, after day after day, after day. 
This morning, when they woke up, they would look to see if there was smoke coming up from the temple, smoke coming up from the tabernacle, so that God would dwell with his people. Tonight, they would wonder, did the priests do their job so that we can be with our God? This priest would sacrifice in the morning. The priest would sacrifice at night. Tomorrow morning, they would prepare to sacrifice so that God would dwell with his people. Tomorrow night, they had to sacrifice so that God would dwell with his people. What's my point? My point, I hope and trust, is the preacher's point in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Only Jesus is the priest that didn't need to be purified to bring purity to his people. And only Jesus, who was alone, the one who could sacrifice one time and it all be done. Only Jesus is the priest who was also the sacrifice. Only Jesus was the priest who didn't bring a lamb into the holy place to sacrifice. Only Jesus was the priest who was the lamb. Jesus was the final lamb, the final Passover. Jesus was the final sacrifice for the purification for all time of all of God's people for every sin it was done. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus made purification for sins. What an encompassing phrase. It is done, and he did it all. He purified us not with a peace treaty, not by making new rules, not by lowering God's standards, not with the same old sacrifice of blood and fat and fire and ashes. He purified us forever with his own life. When Jesus made purification for sins on that Friday morning, when the lamb that is the son was sacrificed, what happened that Friday night? Nothing. There was never another sacrifice that pleased the Father. Jesus purified us, not by blood being splashed on an altar, but by blood dripping from a cross. When Jesus purified us, God was not merely temporarily satisfied by his wrath, but eternally propitiated. God didn't look at the sacrifice of Jesus and think, well, I'm good until evening. When Jesus made purification for sins, there was, there was no wash, rinse, and repeat. It was done. It was final forever. It was finished. And our purity was positionally and eternally secured forever and ever and ever. We've been set free from sin. We've been set free from the past penalty of sin, the present difficulty of sin, the future sin that we sin will be drawing off of the eternally wonderful and beautiful sacrifice of Christ that's perfectly worthy. Jesus purified us from our sin. Imagine a priest coming out of the Holy of Holies after putting blood on the horns of the altar with his thumbs or splattering it on the sides of the altar, and he, he slips through these beautiful curtains that separated this holy area away from the rest of the temple. Imagine he walks out of these beautiful curtains and he allows the curtains to close behind him. Even in the moments after that sacrifice, what did he know he was going to have to do? Come back that night to do the same thing over again. There was a reminder built in that everything they did was temporary because they weren't perfect and they couldn't satisfy God in perfection. That night, the priests were going to offer another sacrifice, the same as that morning and the same as the next morning and the same as the next night so that God's people could approach God and God would be appeased and dwell with his people, but not so with Jesus. He made purification. For sin. He died on the cross as the final lamb 
and the curtain that kept the sinfulness of man from haphazardly approaching the glory and holiness of God from the outer courts. What happened to that temple? God's the one who ripped it from top to bottom. It was broken open because the perfect sacrifice had finally been made that was going to be eternally forever satisfactory to him. God looked at the sacrifice of his son hanging lifeless from a cross, dripping blood onto rocky outcroppings of a bald hilltop we call Calvary. And God said, that's enough. God says, that's what I deserved. Though you had never done it before, he has. That's what only my son could provide. Now and finally now, man can come to me, God says. By the eternally sufficient sacrifice, man can commune with me on the basis of an eternally worthy offering the son has finally been able to make. But until Christ... Everything was provision, everything was provisional. But now finally the permanent, perfect, final, supreme sacrifice has come. Friends, the shadow of sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament is beautiful, dignified. It's glorious in its own right, but it's temporary. But Jesus has come, and the final sacrifice is to all those things even more. More beautiful, more glorious, eternally sufficient, eternally more powerful, eternally more beautiful, eternally more dignified. Our Savior died to make purification for our sins for all time, and he alone has succeeded. So what do you do with that? Turn to Romans chapter 3. See what God does with it. Romans chapter 3, there's two options in how you respond to this truth. First option presents itself in a variety of ways. You can ignore Jesus. You can question his historicity. You can amend Jesus to fit your desires more appropriately. You can choose to not think about Jesus, but all of those would be under the uncomfortable heading of rejecting Jesus. That's option number one. Or look at chapter 3, verse 23. A reminder of why purification is necessary for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So you see, when you read that Jesus made purification for sins, it's only efficacious for those who receive this work of Christ by faith in Christ. And that's it. I think it's funny, everybody wants to be special these days. Remember when I was in college, like, if you want to be special, you dye your hair. You know, you could be special for a short amount of time. If you want to really be special, you got a tattoo. If you want to really, really be special, you got a tattoo where everybody could see it. You know, it's like this progression of being special. Everybody wants to be special. Everybody wants something unique. Friend, there is no unique path to salvation. There's only one. It is narrow. It is difficult. And it is this. You have sinned. Jesus was sent by God, because he loved you. Even in your sin, Jesus died to purify your sin, to set you free from the penalty, the power, the presence, and the permanence of sin. If you want life and you want forgiveness and you want to know God, then you must believe that only Christ could do what you could never do. And in fact, he's already done it. 
Jesus says, anybody can come after me. Who's that? Anybody can come after me. But if you do come after me, you'll deny yourself, you'll pick up your cross, and you'll follow me. You can't find your own way to heaven. Only by Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who has ever made purification for sins permanently. So who's the son? The son is the one who made purification for sins. What an accomplishment. And after making purification for sins, Hebrews 1.3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. From Jesus' accomplishment to his exaltation. This is how Hebrews constantly uh, pictures Jesus from his suffering to his reward from the cross to the crown. And in these words, there's a finality, a royalty, and a supremacy to his exaltation. But notice, his exaltation came after his sacrifice. Jesus' act of purification is the qualifying action that brings about his exaltation. When you read the sermon to the Hebrews, you see this over and over and over. Though he was humbled, he is now glorified. And that is who he is. Because as we see here, he's been exalted. Notice the finality. He sat down. I love this. Let me ask you, did priests sit down in the temple? No. Why? Because they didn't belong there. Did priests sit down in the temple? No. Why? Because their work was never done. Jesus, he sat down. He says, I own this place. This is mine. Sitting is evidence that his mission was accomplished. But notice, Jesus did not sit down in heaven until he had condescended to earth to be born in a manger. He didn't sit down in heaven until he had done what you desperately needed him to do. He didn't sit down in heaven until he chose to be raised in an occupied and an oppressed nation and to serve and love this nation who he knew would eventually reject him, which they did. Jesus didn't sit down in heaven until all of that was accomplished, until Jesus chose to be arrested like a robber and a thug, though he was Israel's most righteous man. Until that had happened, Jesus didn't sit down in heaven. Until Jesus was murdered as Israel's perfect sacrifice, Jesus didn't sit down in heaven until Jesus could cry out, John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished, Jesus didn't sit down in heaven. But friend, when Jesus sat down in heaven, all the work of redemptive history, all the hopes of Israel's Messiah, all the longings for a future servant, savior, king were satisfied. The king had come, the king had won. And so the royalty is made known. Jesus sits down. Jesus didn't sit down on a folding chair in the corner of heaven. He didn't get honorable mention. He was the prized son of God. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What's this? This is the royalty. This is the son at the right hand of the majesty. What's the majesty? It's a reverent way to say Yahweh. It's a reverent way to say this is the beauty of God, the majesty. And Jesus sat down at his right hand. This was a way to uncommonly and with reverence name God. Jesus sat at Yahweh's right hand. Why? Because after the cross, the father says, come on, son, your work is done. For now, sit here at my right hand. This is undoubtedly an allusion to the incredible words of Psalm 110 that made no sense until Jesus showed up and says, this is me. Maybe you remember Mark chapter 12, the religious are getting all up in Jesus' business, and he quotes Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1, he says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who's it talking about? Jesus. 
When's it talking about? Here. After he made purification for sins. The son of David, Jesus, sits at God's right hand. The right hand, a position is both a, a unique position of power and a unique position of rank. It's a position of unrivaled glory and unbridled authority. There is nothing beyond the right hand of God. Jesus is at God's right hand because he has the power. He is our protection and he will fully and finally conquer his enemies when the father says so. And the potent imagery of Jesus sitting in the divine cosmic throne at the father's right hand proves that Jesus is not godlike He's not the best man has to offer. He's not an overflow of divinity. Jesus on the right hand of God's cosmic throne proves that he is the unique sovereign king of all things. Because he is the son of God, he is actually God. I love the final little description the preacher throws in there just in case you weren't picking up what he is putting down. It points to the supremacy of Christ. Where's this throne room seated? Where is Jesus at? The right hand of the, of the majesty. Well, that should be enough, but it's not. On high, by the way, he says, it's on high. It's a profound redundancy. God's throne represents his sovereign majesty. What's above it? Nothing. But just remember that. Nothing's above it. The preacher reminds us it's on high. You can't get any higher than this. This Son of God, this heir, the creator, the real genuine person of God who sustains and upholds the universe by the word of his power has the universe in his hands, the one who came down to purify you by his life and his death. He's the one at God's right hand. He's the son. He's the final revelation of God. And in addition, he's the one who's Name is written on the most wonderful and excellent inheritance the world has ever known, that all of eons of time and space have ever seen. And what is that name? The Son, verse 4, has inherited the name that defines excellence, the name that puts the standard on perfection and glory. What's his name? Come back next week. Let's pray. Father, we have been given all we need. But we search and look for what can't be found where it will never be. Would you help us to find in this final revelation, this perfect son, the purification of our sins, that we could, by your grace, through the faith you give us, Every moment we desire, enter your courts, come to your throne, bring our struggles, our sufferings, our failure, our sin, and find grace and help and mercy and life. Father, for those who don't know you, help them, please, to humble themselves and see there is no other way but to confess their own sin before you, to trust that only Jesus could purify them and to believe that the only way there is is offered by you, the one who is full of grace and truth. Father, for those of us who are your children, keep us from distraction, from the so many things that tug at our hearts when this perfect son who sits at your right hand, should be the object of our every affection. Help us to live for him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.